0: Today we're beginning a new sermon series that is called The Glory of Christmas. Although hopefully it's clear to you as you watch this video, as you see the logo for this series, is the focus is actually on the glory of Christ, which is very important because it's actually the glory of Christ that gives Christmas its significance. As we enter this new Christmas season here in 2015, I have a concern that weighs on my heart. And the concern is this. I'm concerned that amidst all the activities and the traditions and even the stressors or the drama of Christmas, that we might lose sight of the glory of Christ. Maybe it's because of the stress and busyness of the season. Maybe it's because we are so focused on the joys of the season, like time with family and tasty food and and fun parties and and fun concerts and fun gifts, that, that we're so focused on these good things that we lose sight Of the greatest thing of all. Or maybe our view of God's glory is being clouded by a spirit of anger or bitterness inside of us. I mean, it could be there for any number of reasons. But I even think about how Christians in a well-meaning spirit of wanting to honor Christ can get this anger or bitterness. Because we feel like this season is being overwhelmed by commercialism and by greed. Or, Or we feel like this movement of political correctness is undermining the reason for the season. We get angry, but what ends up happening is that rather than focusing on on Christ's glory, that view gets clouded because we're so focused on on that bitterness that's welling up inside of us. Or maybe our view of Christ's glory is simply being obscured because we're just kind of going through the motions of Christmas activities. I think this is the category that I'm most prone to. I think of how this last week, my family is decorating our house for Christmas. And you know what that routine is like. I mean, you're, you're, you're carrying the boxes up from the basement. You're unpacking the decorations. You're trying to sort through the strands of Christmas lights, trying to figure out how come these lights that worked last year don't work this year. It happens mysteriously every single year, doesn't it? But then you get everything out. You put up the stuff. But as I was doing this this year, just earlier this week, I couldn't shake this sense of deja vu. This sense of, you know, how's it already December again? It seems like we just did this. And I have to admit, I was a bit half-hearted in the decorating that we were doing in our house. And as I was looking at all the activities that we have on the calendar for church, and as a family, over the next few weeks, I have to admit that I had a bit of a been-there-done-that mentality of, wow, here we go again. I, I wasn't fully engaged in my heart with that. Although, I will still say that there are a lot of things here that I enjoy. I mean, even decorating our house. Well, my favorite part was decorating Christmas tree with our children. And they each had their own ornaments to put on and stuff like that. Uh, Tahila, our three-year-old daughter, did the classic three-year-old thing of putting all her ornament ornaments on the same branch. You see that picture on the lower left? Uh, if it's not clear for you, there are seven ornaments within very close proximity right there. And that picture was taken after we asked her to spread them out some. And so, you know, it's fun to do things like this. But I still have to admit, there's that part of me that just, it's kind of like been there, done that, here we go, through the busyness and the stress again. And so it's so easy to be kind of half-hearted. But At the same time, I also look at what's going on in my heart, and I see that, that I'm getting fired up about something this year. What am I getting fired up about? What's capturing my heart? It's the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. So I shared, I have a concern about this Christmas season, but I also have a goal for us this Christmas season. Now, maybe you might think it's kind of weird that I'm setting a goal for you this Christmas season. You can take it or leave it, whatever you want. But my goal for us is that we, over the next month or so, would grow in standing in awe of Jesus. That we would be captivated by the breathtaking, radiant glory of Christ, that amidst everything else we have going on during this season, yes, many of us do have a lot of things and many good things, but that the greatest thing that will capture heart more than anything else is the glory of Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, this, this chapter contains a passage that I believe is one of the most magnificent passages in the entire Bible. And it's a passage that focuses on the glory of Christ. Now, let me give you an analogy to help you understand how significant and how glorious I think this passage is. If you are a Packers fan, I want you to think for a minute about how you felt on Thursday night or Friday morning if you turn the game off too early. How you felt when Aaron Rodgers completed that Hail Mary pass at the very end of the game. How do you feel? I mean, here's the the scenario in the game. Packers are down the whole game. At one point, they were down by 20 points. They were down, still still down, about to lose the game with zero seconds left in the clock. Packers somehow, there was a defensive penalty. They got one more snap, zero seconds on the clock. Aaron Rodgers heaves the ball 70 yards in the air into the end zone. Packers tight end miraculously catches it, and Packers win the game. And you're sitting there watching that going, whoa, how did that just happen? I cannot believe that. That, that was amazing. I mean, you struggle to even believe what you just saw. because it's so amazing. It's so almost outlandish that that took place, but it was real. And you're just standing there in awe and wonder. That, I believe, is the response that we should have when we come to this passage here in Philippians 2. If we have a pulse, and if we have any interest in Jesus at all, this is a passage that should absolutely capture our attention with that same sense of awe and wonder, actually even much greater than when Aaron Rogers completed that pass. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive into this amazing passage. Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world, that you sent your one and only Son into this world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a glorious truth that is. And Lord, in the midst of busyness and stress and activity of this Christmas season, in the midst of You know, this isn't our first Christmas. We can have that been there, done that mentality. In the midst of all these things, Lord, I pray that you will cut through all those things right into the core of our heart and capture us, Lord, with your glory. And I pray that in the process, that this will not just be a seasonal thing, but that it will transform us for the rest of our lives and on into eternity. So I pray that you will guide us, inspire us through your Holy Spirit today, Lord, and illumine your word for us that we may see your glory with fresh eyes. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now let me set the context for our passage. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 has the Apostle Paul talking to Christians in a Greek city called Philippi. Philippi is in northeastern Greece. He's talking to these Philippian Christians about the importance of living with love and unity towards one another. In verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not just looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So that's some very powerful stuff right there. I mean, it's very practical, very relevant in all types of relationships that if we just put into practice, it's going to transform things. But we have to understand that Paul, when giving this very practical, relevant command to, to live with love and humility and servanthood towards others, he doesn't just leave it hanging there. Many people, when they view Christianity, they think it's just a list of rules and commands and obligations. But Christianity, you know what, is so much more than that. And what he does right here is show that that, that this is not just a a, a nice, abstract, or valuable rule. What he does is point to the example of how Christ lived this out. Verse 5, the very next verse, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Jesus is to be our model in how we relate to the people around us. Have the same mindset, have the same attitude as Jesus. And that sets up the passage that we're going to be focusing on in the coming weeks here during this Christmas series. It's verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read the whole passage just to give us a context. And this is a passage that I talked about. If we have a pulse, and if we have any interest at all in Jesus, this is a passage that if we really see it clearly should absolutely capture our attentions. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is such a rich passage here. And it could be described as a theology of Christmas. Describing what is going on behind the scenes when Jesus came into this world. Oftentimes when we think about Christmas, even from a biblical perspective, we think about it from a human angle. We think about Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. We think about the baby Jesus laying in a manger. We think about shepherds coming uh, to see this baby Jesus. We think about these things that are going on on the human level. But this passage right here is talking more about what went on in that first Christmas from a divine perspective. And one of the things that's very evident here, we're focusing in today on verse 6. In the coming weeks, we'll go through the rest of the passage. In verse 6, it's very evident that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is Jesus being in very nature God. If you were to read this more literally, it would say Jesus who's in the very form of God. Now we have to understand, Jesus or God does not have a physical form. He doesn't have a physical body. He is, he is spirit. But he has very clear characteristics of who he is. He is eternal. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is ever-present. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything. These are examples of characteristics that are central to the nature of who God is. And so in saying that Jesus is in very form or in very nature God, it's saying that these characteristics characterize Jesus from eternity past. That Jesus is God. But it's interesting, as we go through the rest of this passage, we see that there is a distinction as well being made. We see it most clearly in verses 9 and 11. Verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted Jesus... To the highest place, and so we see an apparent distinction between God and Jesus in some manner, and then we see a similar distinction in verse eleven that says, "In every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." And so, it's just, it's interesting to see here that there is again a distinction. You have Jesus; um, he's here being acknowledged as Lord but it's to the glory of God the Father. So you have these two, apparently two entities here that are somehow related, because they're certainly related. Back in verse 6, it says Jesus is in very nature God, that he was equal to God. So how does this work, that we have uh, Jesus being God, he's equal to God, yet he's also apparently in some manner distinct from God the Father. How does all this work? Well, this is pointing to what we know as the Trinity. The Trinity, let me just give you a a definition of what the Trinity is. It's it's this idea of God eternally existing as three persons. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. These are all biblical truths. And, you know, it's one of those things that can boggle your mind. But these three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're called persons because they are personal beings. But they're, they're one being at the same time. But, but as we look in Scripture, I, I mean, the Scripture is very, very, very clear. There is only one God. But God the Father is presented as God. God the Son is, is presented as God. God the Holy Spirit is also presented as God. But they are all one, a unity that's existed in perfect glory, perfect joy, perfect love from eternity past. And when we look in Scripture, we see that each member of the Trinity has, has specific roles in relationship to the creation. God the Father is the one who oversees everything. I mean, we're speaking in general terms here, but God the Son is the focal point of redemption, the one who came to this world in the form of Jesus. And he he was the one who died on the cross. And now he's back in heaven, interceding uh, for those of us who are believers in Christ at the right hand of God, the Father. Then you have God, the Holy Spirit, who is very active in the world today, living inside of Christians, empowering us to live the life that he's calling us to live, carrying out God's will on this earth. So we have the Trinity, this three-in-one unity, and and we see glimpses of the Trinity throughout Scripture. Starting back even as early as Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Do you hear the plurals there? Let us. Make man in our image. Just a little hint about the Trinity. And, and uh, the, the, the teaching about the Trinity becomes much more prominent when you get into the New Testament. And so, what we see here as we move in the New Testament, move back into our passage that we're looking at today in Philippians 2, is that Jesus is God the Son with a human body. God the Son has existed forever. He is God. He existed outside of time. But there was a point about 2,000 years ago that he stepped out of eternity into time, took on a human body. And that, when you really try to wrap your mind around it, it's simply astounding. And and Jesus, though, during his earthly ministry, he always knew that he was God. Let me give you a couple examples. One, One time you see this is in John chapter 8. John 8, Jesus is having a debate with the Jewish leaders about who is Jesus. They were challenging his authority, wondering, Jesus, what are you? Who are you? What are you doing here? And at one point, verses 56 through 59, we see a really interesting exchange between them. that shows that Jesus had full awareness of who he he was as God. Verse 56, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They replied to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So, such an interesting conversation here. Jesus is saying, okay, Abraham, this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, he rejoiced to see my day. And, And you could think, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He knows he's the Messiah, so he's claiming to be the Messiah. That Abraham was looking forward to when the Messiah would come. And that is true. But Jesus is making so much more of a statement than that. Because Jesus then says, before Abraham was born, I am. He's saying, you know what? Abraham, he lived 2,000 years ago. I was around even before Abraham. Now, none of us mere humans can make that sort of statement, can we? I mean... No one has a 2,000-year lifespan. Jesus is making a statement that he's something so much more than just a human. And even the statement where he says, before Abraham was born, I am, that is a statement of deity. Because this is a reference to the Old Testament name Yahweh, the Jewish Hebrew name for God, the most sacred name Yahweh, which means I am that I am. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's saying that I am that you worship the one who is in the Old Testament who spoke to Moses, for instance, out of a burning bush, "I am He." And the Jews completely understood what Jesus was saying here—this claim to deity. That is why it says that this they picked up stones to stone him. They saw Jesus committing blasphemy in their mind because Jesus was claiming to be God. A couple chapters later, they actually say, "You, a mere man, are claiming to be God." So he knew. That he was God. We see similarly over in John chapter 17. It's the night before Jesus is crucified. And he's praying to his heavenly father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Picking up in verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's an astounding statement, isn't it? Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus knew who he was. He was God. And he knew that. I mean, so he, he is God, he, he's, he's Lord over all. He was the sustainer, the creator of the universe. Yet, yeah, what's he doing? Coming down into a manger. He could do anything he wants. I mean, he could rightfully demand anything he wants because he is God. Yet it says, verse 6 Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So, what this is saying here is that Jesus didn't leverage his Godhood, his identity as God, the privileges and benefits that come along with it. He didn't leverage his Godhood for his own benefit. I mean, you look at who Jesus was, I mean, in terms of his pre his, his the fact that he's been God throughout eternity, and you wonder, how did he end up in a manger? I mean, in our society, we, we tend to think about how can we improve our status? How can we improve our lives? How can we make more money? How can we move up the corporate ladder? How can we uh, become more popular with the people around us? How can we get a better job? How can we get get better grades? We want to continually be improving our status in life and in society. But you wonder what in the world could be going through Jesus' mind to make him think, Okay, hmm, here I am on my heavenly throne. It's it's really nice up here. You know, maybe I'd like to go down there and be born into um, a no-name family uh, in an obscure village, laid in a manger, what sort of thinking would make, make someone think that? Well, I mean, we see Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I mean, this is talking about something that he did not seize uh, for his own usage. He, I mean, his glory and the benefits and the privileges that come with being God, he wasn't going to hold on to them forcefully. He wasn't going to exploit them for his own benefit. Instead, He was willing to release them. And this is completely the opposite of the attitude of our culture today. I mean, Let me just give you a snapshot of the culture that we are all a part of that I think we will recognize very well. Our culture trains us to be all that we can be. It trains us to grab life by the horns, to look out for number one, to get what's yours. We are trained to live out the American dream. The American dream is built on ambition. But oftentimes, as Paul references in verse 3 of our passage, this ambition turns inward. It becomes selfish ambition, trying to build ourselves up, not caring as much about how it impacts those around us. We're, told, we're, we're taught to leverage situations for our benefit. That if we're involved in a business deal, if we're buying something, try to get the very best deal that you possibly can. Or that if you serve others, or if you, um, if you come up with a good idea, make sure that you get the credit for it. You don't want someone else getting credit for something where you really deserve the credit, do you? Our culture trains us that if you're in a disagreement with someone, make sure that you get the last word in that disagreement. Keep fighting to make sure you get that last word. Our culture is often has been called an entitlement culture. An entitlement culture creates in us a mindset that makes us think that we can have anything we want, whenever we want it, and if we don't get it, then we are being mistreated. That we're, it's fine for us, and we have the right then to throw a fit if we don't get what we want when we want it. This is the entitlement culture. And so we, we believe then in that entitlement culture that because everyone else has one, we should have one as well. Or that because we work hard, that we deserve this, 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 and this. Or you know what? If circumstances are really hard and difficult in our lives— then we are being mistreated. We deserve better, and we look for someone to blame. And if we can't find any other human to blame, and we don't want to take the blame for ourselves, well, then we'll start blaming God, that he's the one who's giving us the raw end of the deal. Because we live in an entitlement culture that thinks we need to leverage situations for our own benefit, and, and that we need to do everything we can to hold on to things, to make things just the way that we want them. And this is being screamed at us from advertisements, from TV shows, from uh, song lyrics, uh, from even school classrooms. All of, all of our culture is yelling at us and teaching us and ingraining us with this mentality that you deserve. You can fill in the blank with whatever you want. You deserve it. You're entitled to it. It is your right. And so here you have God the Son. I mean, he's God. He's the creator, the sustainer of everything. He he could have any privilege, any benefit that he wants. Yet he chooses to lay it all aside, to come into this world. I mean, imagine this this imaginary conversation within the Trinity at some point, uh, in eternity past, before he came into this world. Imagine what it would be like to talk about these plans. Be like, I mean, Jesus, in that sort of conversation, in this considering what he's going to do, he didn't sit there thinking, okay, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it if I decide to go down there into that world? No, he didn't think that at all. I mean, imagine if, if someone then said to him, but Jesus, you're going to be laid in a manger. It doesn't matter. But Jesus, you will have nowhere to lay your head. It doesn't matter. But Jesus, you're going to be an outcast and a stranger. That's fine. Jesus, they're going to nail you to a cross and your followers will all desert you. Jesus says, that's okay. How do they do this? I mean, it's so opposite of our culture. And I think the reason that he was able to do this is because according to verse 6 of Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He was not going to exploit the privileges and the benefits of being God. Because he was willing to release them. Jesus embodied humility. He embodied humility. When Jesus came into this world, I mean, it was the display of ultimate humility, ultimate servanthood. But in doing these things, he was not disguising God's character. Instead, he was revealing the very character of who God is. That God, he is a holy God. He's a powerful God. He's an all-knowing God. He's a sovereign God. He's also a gracious God and a loving God. Jesus embodied humility. I think that when you read verse 6 here, Jesus being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I think that there is actually what is known as a causal relationship here. A causal relationship says, because of this, then this. Now what verse 6 is saying, or actually what it's not saying, it's not saying, okay, well, Jesus was God, but in spite of being God, he, he, he decided that he would have to come out of heaven and come to this world to do some business and then go back up there. It wasn't saying in spite of being God. It's actually saying because he was God, he was willing to set aside his heavenly glory, to, 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 to give rather than focus on getting. And I think the very fact that he was God enabled him to do this. So oftentimes when we have pride and arrogance in our lives, It's because we are trying to prove something to someone, whether ourselves or to someone else. Jesus, he didn't have anything to prove. He knew that he was God. He knew what his identity is. And in all the time that he was here on earth, he knew that he always had the Father's approval. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so out of that fullness of knowing who he was, knowing that he was God, knowing that he has the Father's approval, he didn't have anything to prove to anyone else. That enabled him to be humble. And to serve sacrificially. So Jesus embodied humility. And because he was God, he was actually able to lay those benefits and privileges aside. Not hold on to them tightly, but say, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to surrender those. To come do what he needed to do here on this earth. But what, is, what this illustrates is opposing mindsets that can, that, can, that can be a part of our lives. The Opposing mindsets are either we grasp on the stuff, trying to hold on the stuff for ourselves, getting what's ours, controlling our circumstances, trying to leverage situations for our benefit. That's one mindset that's very prominent in today's world. The other mindset is freely giving away what we have. Saying, you know what? I don't need it. I'm willing to release it. If there is something better that, that my resources, my time could be used for, I'm willing to do that rather than trying to hold on to it only for my own benefit. So it begs a question in our lives of are we givers or are we takers? I mean, Jesus, it's very obvious what he was. He was, he was a giver. I mean, he, he gave. He gave of everything that he had. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But for us, are we givers or takers? I mean, this applies on so many levels. For, I mean, money is one instance. Are we looking to accumulate what we can for our own benefit? Or with our money and possessions, are we willing to hold them with an open hand and freely share with those around us? It applies as well with our time and our attention. Do we serve others? Do we care for others? Do we give others the best of our time and our attention? Or say in our conversations, are we always drawing the conversations back to ourselves, back to our stories, back to patting ourselves in the back, or back to our problems? In our relationships with others, Do we give emotional energy to others, or do we drain it? Are we a source of encouragement and hope and joy? Or by drawing others just back to ourselves all the time and back to our issues, are we draining those situations? I mean, do we freely give praise to others and accolades and commendation, or are we just looking for them to praise us? It all stems from this difference in mindsets of do we grasp onto what we think is ours, what we deserve, because we're entitled to it, or do we hold it freely? And Jesus is our model of freely and humbly holding everything and releasing it as needed. And when you see this this breathtaking humility of Jesus, it really undermines any sort of pride or arrogance that we can have in our lives. I mean, oftentimes our pride and arrogance comes from comparing ourselves with others. Especially we compare ourselves with someone else who isn't doing as well as us, um, at least from our perspective. We think, you know what, we're doing pretty well, so we give ourselves a pat on the back. You know what? There is no room at all for pride or arrogance when you're in the presence of Jesus. I mean, you look at him, God of the universe. I mean, the most supreme being that exists came to this earth, walking in human form, Standing next to him, looking at him, there is absolutely no room for pride or arrogance on our part. It undermines it completely. And this should make a very practical difference in our day-to-day lives. For instance, if you lead somewhere, whether in your workplace, in your home, in the church, wherever, if you lead, this attitude of humility should characterize your leadership if you are in relationships with others, in marriage, uh, parenting, if you're a child and you have parents, if you're in a workplace, this attitude of humility should characterize how you relate to those around you. I mean, it even shows up in in small situations. I mean, the examples I thought of immediately in this, of looking not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others, I thought about food. I mean, if you know me, you know I enjoy food. I mean, I think of many times when I'm just hanging out with friends or whatever and we're eating, say, pizza and you have one piece of pizza left in the box and, you know, my stomach still has room for more and I I would enjoy that piece of pizza. I mean, what's going through your mind? You're thinking, I want that pizza. You're not thinking, hey, I think so-and-so should have it. I want them to have it. Because if your stomach's rumbling and you like food, you probably want that pizza for yourself. Paul says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's such a contrary mindset to how we typically think. I also thought about ice cream. I mean, imagine someone's dishing up a bunch of bowls of ice cream. Some bowls have a little bit more ice cream than others. If you're like me, you naturally want one of the bigger bowls of ice cream. You feel like you got the, the short end of the stick if you get the small bowl. You want the big bowl because you're focused on what you want. You want to leverage that situation for your own benefit because our natural sense— is to look to what's going to benefit us. But you look at Jesus, he was not focused on what is going to benefit him. He's focused on others. He's living out humility. He's living out servanthood. And it's because he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, we are looking at what it looks like to live this Christian life. I mean, if we call ourselves Christians, we have to think about what does that mean? Typically, people think, you know what? I'm Christian because I'm not Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, whatever. So I'm Christian. I'm Christian because I go to church. Or I'm Christian because I subscribe to a certain set of doctrines and practices. You know what? Some of those things, they have relevance. But its most basic form to be a Christian is to be associated with Christ. That you're a Christian because you follow Christ. Because when people see you, they see Christ through you. And so one of the greatest ways for people to see Christ in us is for us to embody his character, that humility that he is living out. He is our model. Oftentimes in our society, we put people on a pedestal who move from rags to riches. And we celebrate the stories of the mailroom clerk who becomes the CEO or the street kid who becomes the MVP or of the immigrant who strikes it rich. We celebrate those rags to riches stories. But according to Paul, and according to Jesus' example, that's not to be our ideal story as Christians. I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with success and such, but that's not the goal. Jesus is our model, and his story is one, not of moving from rags to riches. His story is one of moving from omnipotence to obscurity, from stardom to slavery, from riches to rags. It's counterintuitive, I know. But that is what we are called to as well. And so I have two main prayers for us as we close out this time together today. One prayer is that we will embody the same humility that Jesus embodied. That we will live out this humility in our relationships with those around us. But the second prayer, going back to my overall goal for us for this next month, is that as we gaze upon Christ's amazing, breathtaking humility, that, I mean, it just boggles our minds, that we will just stand in awe of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are willing to step off your heavenly throne, to release the benefits and the privileges and the glories associated with heaven, and that you are willing to come into this world. Lord, what an amazing reality that is. And we thank you that you came to reconcile us with the Father so that we could have true life uh, through him. Lord, I pray that you will give us a humility and how we relate to those around us. And I pray that as we continue the journey through this Christmas season, that you will focus our eyes on you in such a way that we can't help but stand in awe and wonder and say, wow, Jesus, you are amazing. I can't believe what you did, but I am so thankful. To you be the glory. And we pray these things in your name with great gratitude. Amen.